Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've sent me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Oh boy, this was really quite a week. I, um, for those of you who don't know or didn't see my podcast, I spent two full days at the International Flat Earth Conference here in Denver, and it was really quite an, an experience. It was really literally like going back into Scientology for a couple days. Um, and I'm not, you know, engaging in hyperbole when I say these people are very culty. Um, I downloaded, uh, you know, for about an hour afterwards in my podcast this week. If you guys haven't checked that out, I would actually really ask you to do that because um, I think that there are lessons to be learned here. I think there are things to know about this that, um, that I went over in the podcast and talked about. And um, I'm going to be doing some more research and looking at some things in terms of conspiracy theory and conspiracy thinking. I've talked about that quite a bit on my channel, and I want to kind of come to a close on talking about that as a thing. And so I'm going to, my plan right now is to put a video together on that this coming week uh, so that I can kind of have an end of endless, you know, okay, here's the deal with that, and then just kind of move on. Um, also this week on Thursday, we did a video, Lloyd Evans and I, he's a former Jehovah's Witness, in, res in, in response to our comments and opinions and, and feedback on Leah Remini's season opener for season three of Scientology in the Aftermath. It was a two-hour, um, just amazing uh, breakdown of Jehovah's Witnesses' uh, ideas and abuses and, and exploitation and things that have gone on in that group that were some pretty disturbing stuff. Um, and finally getting really broad exposure through Leah's show. So uh, we're all very happy about that. So if you haven't checked that video out, please do so as well. I also wanted to give a shout out to my latest Patreons from this month. Um, you know, some of these guys, it's just a, a buck or two. Some of you guys are a lot more. All of you are appreciated uh, for what you are doing and helping to keep my uh, little operation going here so that I can give you the content that I'm giving you. And so here's my shout out. And please forgive me if I get your name, if I butcher your name. It's just kind of what I do. Uh, Tommy Bastman, Ronnie Drimmer, Jane Gonzalez, Eli Strauss Rice, Kristen Sundell, Jennifer Holliday, Robin Cobb, Catherine Torpy, thank you for upping yours, Larry Marvin, Unar Christ, Lynn Davis, and Lori Verudi. All right, thank you guys very much for your Patreon contributions. Now let's go ahead and get on with answering some questions for this week. Monica, could you please talk a little bit about the hypocrisy of Scientology and their take on human rights, especially in light of the Khashoggi murder? A recent conversation with my Scientologist relative made it clear to me that there was no care whether Khashoggi, a journalist for the Washington Post, was slain and dismembered after walking into the Saudi consulate in Turkey a few weeks ago. The basic nonchalant reaction to my bringing up the topic seemed to be that it was basically Khashoggi's own fault for having put himself in that situation, both from having been an outspoken critic of his government and having been naive enough to walk into the consulate in the first place. This seems like a slippery slope to me in light of the current administration's hostility towards the press. I realize Scientologists don't hold journalists in high esteem and think news is en theta to be avoided. Is this not hypocrisy when they in the same breath claim to hold human rights near and dear to their hearts with Scientology front groups like the Citizens Commission for Human Rights and their Youth for Human Rights initiative at the United Nations? How do Scientologists even sleep at night? 
Where do they get their news if they don't value journalists' lives? Do they just chalk it up to, gotta clear the planet of insanity, that's the one way forward? Is there no outrage? Okay, well you opened up a really big topic here, Monica, and um, I don't know, you know, how much detail I really want to get into this now because this is actually going to be part of my work when I get my, my first next book done on the RPF. Um, that's going to be tied very much into this question of human rights because Scientology is grossly hypocritical about their stance on human rights while within, you know, they praise and seek to get other people to believe that human rights are very important. They propagate and, and disseminate the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They teach, they put together actually really good educational materials for children about human rights. It's, it's actually like, it's hard for me to even want to admit that, and yet that is the truth. Some of the materials Scientology's put together to teach kids about the points of the Declaration of Human Rights are brilliant. They're really good. And they also put together some really good little PSAs, some public service announcements and little clips and little video clips about teaching about all of those points of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So I have to honestly give them kudos for that work. Now, I have to also cut them off at the knees because they are the biggest hypocrites on the planet for promoting human rights over here and then having an RPF, a Sea Org, the operation of the Sea Org, the way that that operation works, it violates people's human rights one, one side and down the other. They practically violate every single one of the points of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights just by running the Sea Org the way that they do. So it's, you know, so yes, it is definitely a hypocritical operation. Now, in terms of what you're talking about with the regular Joe Schmo Scientologist and their take on this sort of thing, what you're actually getting into there is the hypocrisy, at least as far as I can see, comes from the more fundamental principle in Scientology that an individual is always responsible for his own condition. This is really big in Scientology, this point of what is responsibility as a definition. Hubbard defines responsibility as um, sort of like knowing causative action that an individual is taking uh, in order to, you know, to uh, knowing and willing cause over a, a thing, whether that's a car or a house or your life or whatever it is. If you're being responsible, then you are being, um, you know, at cause, you are causing things to occur with that thing. And you know you are doing that. And you're unapologetic about it. And that's kind of Hubbard's take or slant on what responsibility is. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, he's, he, he kind of writes about it in a number of different ways, but that's pretty much what it comes down to. So if a person is supposed to be in Scientology, if a person is supposed to be responsible for their own condition, then that means if they walk into, you know, a Khashoggi walks into a consulate and is murdered, well, that was, you know, that's, that's, it's not like the murderers aren't at fault for what they did, but it's pretty much on him that he walked in there and put himself in that position in the first place. And the uh, ultimate um, interpretation of Hubbard's works on this are that, you know, whatever happens to you is on you, right? And if you can't deal with that, then you got to look even earlier to see how you made things happen in such a way that that was the outcome. And that's your life and that's what you have to deal with, right? And in some ways, 
this makes sense or this is a, a sensible way of approaching things. You know, you don't want to go too far in terms of, I don't know, being victimized. Uh, where, you know, you're only a victim and, and everything that the world does to you is all, you know, somebody else's causation and, and you're not the causative agent of anything that ever happens to you. I mean, you can go that extreme. And so this responsibility thing sort of pulls you back out of that kind of thinking. But, to, but it then, like I've made the point before with Scientology, it, t it takes every useful, constructive principle that it, that's within the world of Scientology and it dials it up to 11. It just over-exaggerates and it makes it, you know, blows it all out of proportion. And that's what Scientology, that's what L. Ron Hubbard has done with the concept of responsibility. So Scientologists sleep at night because they feel that this bedrock principle of responsibility is very, very important. And um, they don't think about you know, they don't, these are not people who really think in complicated ways, <laughs> okay, Scientologists. It's sort of a culty thing, that your cult members don't think in complex thoughts. Uh, I made this point with the Flat Earthers, and it really drove it home to me in seeing them, and then comparing that way of thinking and behaving to the way Scientologists think and behave, and I went, oh yeah, I kind of get this. Things are simple. Things are really simple. The world outlook is very black and white. We talk about black and white thinking being a characteristic of, of cultish um, mentality. Well, this is, this is how it manifests itself. Is, well, it was, his, it was his damn fault, you know, he shouldn't have been there in the first place or he shouldn't have done that. Oh well, you know. And they don't think at the same time, well, wait a minute, we've got this Universal Declaration of Human Rights over here that we're pushing. And it says that you have a right to live, you know, you got a right to have a life and not be murdered. And, and then there's this way to happiness that L. Ron Hubbard wrote, and it says, don't murder people. Huh, I don't know, boy, now you're getting me thinking, oh boy, I don't know about this. It, you know, it's like, it's a little too complicated for them. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, that's kind of, you know, in a, in a short take here in this format of show, that's kind of what I can say about that, that I think will sort of make some of this make some degree of sense. There's a lot more that could be said about this and a ton more to be said about the hypocrisy of Scientology in regards to human rights. So don't worry, I've, I have been thinking about that quite a bit and I plan on writing a whole book about it. So that's on the horizon and uh, for now that's my answer to this question. Marcus G. As you know, the course room supervisor is called a soup, which is a really silly name. It sounds like soup. Anyways, I remember how this individual seemed cold, unemotional, and unloving, almost like a soulless robot. I asked myself, am I going to become that? If getting trained morphs me into a soulless, ice-cold person, I don't want to pursue this path. How's been your experience? Okay, Marcus, well, first off, I just want to tell you straight up, please don't engage in going forward with Scientology. It is, I mean, I have... This is Critical Q&A episode number 186, and if you haven't partaken in my earlier videos on this, please do so, because it's been made abundantly clear on my channel that Scientology is an abusive, destructive cult that you really don't want to have anything to do with. Now, all that being said, <laughs> supervisors, course room supervisors, are called soups uh, for short, because Scientology shortens and contracts everything. 
I was a course room supervisor for many, many years. And the thing that this question made me think of that I thought I might relate because I've never talked about it before is when I got trained as a course room supervisor, which is, by the way, basically the equivalent of a Scientology teacher in their classrooms where they do training, the course room supervisor oversees what's going on in that classroom. And when I got trained in Scientology's methods of how to be a course room supervisor, I was trained at a Sea Org facility by Sea Org members. And I was trained to be a soulless, cold robot. And when I got back to Santa Barbara, and keep in mind now, I was 18 years old, fresh off the boat, so to speak, right, right out of high school, not a whole lot of real world experience. So when I went to the Sea Org and I got trained on this stuff and Hubbard said that course room supervisors are supposed to be tough, rigorous, unsympathetic, um, you know, to the point, are also supposed to have a high tolerance of stupidity in their students and are supposed to be able to repeat information back to the student over and over again until they actually get it. So there's this, you know, don't mingle with the students, don't get emotionally involved with the students, be ruthless and authoritarian in applying L. Ron Hubbard's study technology to the students, uh, but at the same time, be kind of compassionate or, no, compassionate's too strong a word, but have a high tolerance of stupidity in your students is what L. Ron Hubbard specifically said, so I'll just go with that. Anyway, I came back and I was pretty heartless. I was like, you know, these are the rules, this is how you're supposed to operate, I don't want to hear it any other way. And this was immediately pushed back on by everybody in Santa Barbara. I was, Santa Barbara was a little pipsqueak organization that I worked at for eight years. The people there were not, you know, solid, serious, you know, Sea Org, physically abusive people. I mean, these were nice folks who were, uh, you know, just gullible and got sucked into Scientology like all the rest of us did. And they were, the staff there were trying to be pleasant and happy and compassionate and understanding and caring towards their Scientology parishioners for the most part. It was only when the Sea Org came around that things got heavy and hard and cold. For a while, when I first joined staff, that organization was being run by a Sea Org member and she was a ruthless bitch. Uh, and that's, I, I mean, I, I say that kind of advisedly because she was screaming at people on a daily basis. She was really, really very heartless. Um, her name was Carol, by the way, for anybody from those old Santa Barbara days who might be watching this. Anyway, so, um, so I came back with a Sea Org attitude, even though I was not a Sea Org member yet, and, uh, and I got a lot of pushback on this, and I was told very, very carefully over and over again that I cannot be such a dick to all the public and expect them to keep coming on course and want to show up and want to get training in Scientology if they have to come deal with me, who's, you know, treating them like, I'm, I'm, like they're a bunch of jerks and out ethics, you know, uh, idiots or whatever, right? So I had to tone down, I had to learn how to tone down that attitude that I had been carefully indoctrinated into by the Sea Org. So then what would happen is sometimes I'd go back down to Los Angeles to get some correction as a supervisor by the Sea Org people, and they would correct me and get me all back into this, you know, get me all hotted up on, I got to be ruthless and, and run this thing with a, with a, you know, just efficient and, and hardcore and keeping Scientology working all the way, you know, I got to get in there and I got to, 
I got to penetrate. I got to invade their privacy. I got to do everything that's necessary in order to boom my course room is the expression, right? It was like, like make it bigger, make it more expansive. And I was told by the Sea Org that the reason my course room was not expanding is because I was too nice of a guy. And being a nice guy, nice guys finish last. Nice guys are not what we want. We want ruthless, you know, dictatorial, authoritarian supervisors. So then I would come back being all hotted up on that again. And people would be like, oh my God, and have to tone me down again. Because what would happen both times and repeatedly is when I came back acting like a dick, people didn't want to have anything to do with that course room. And, that was, and so the Sea Org was actually making it so that I made, I would, it, they ensured I would have a small course room by treating people the way they taught me to. And it was only when I kind of chilled out and started treating people like human beings and started being a little nicer to them that I, that people started coming back into my classroom and wanted to do training under me. So this was the sort of back and forth that would bounce around in, in, in Chris Shelton's head for the eight years that I was working at Santa Barbara. And I eventually, you know, thought that, I, I, you know, the whole time that this was happening, I didn't notice that this was what was happening. I'm telling you all about this now, and in hindsight, I can see this all very clearly, but at the time that I was living it, I didn't know which way was the right way. And it wasn't abundantly clear to me, because the Sea Org was very, very hardcore. And all of L. Ron Hubbard's writings were interpreted or seemed to be saying that I should be this ruthless asshole. And all the staff in Santa Barbara were saying, yeah, no, don't do that. But here's what Hubbard said, and it just created this real problem for me. So uh, as to how I was supposed to act and what my personality was supposed to be like. So anyway, I think I got that whole point across. But that was my experience as a supervisor in terms of being a soulless, ice-cold person. And if you, a strict interpretation of L. Ron Hubbard's writings on how to be a course supervisor will absolutely put you in that ice-cold, soulless frame of mind. So, you know, there's no, no real question on where the Sea Org got that idea from. They got it from Hubbard. Um, and that's been my experience with all of that. So I hope that helps you, Marcus, in your decision-making process here because, uh, you know, again, uh, learn from the eight-plus years of my experience. Don't get involved in that. It's just not worth your time or effort. Mark P. In last week's critical Q&A, you made a reference about the older RPFers being more prone to spending their money on cigarettes and then a statement that made me think less physical exertion was expected of them because they were older. Did I hear that right? Being in my mid-60s, the thought of running everywhere, let alone up seven flights of steps, makes me hurt. The idea of losing some weight is appealing, but I would probably die if I were put on the RPF and expected to keep up with the 20 to 30 year old crowd. Is some deference given to those less physically able? In a word, yes. Uh, older people on the RPF were absolutely given um, some breaks in the rules and the running. And, you know, they were run to the edge of their ability as in terms of physical exertion. They were expected to push themselves. And the, the idea with the physical exertion, by the way, and this is, may, might help clarify some understanding with this, is yes, you are being forced to do hard physical labor. 
The reasoning behind it is that you are making up the damage you have done to the Sea Org through your earlier inaction and criminal action, act, actions that landed you on the RPF in the first place. You demonstrated to the Sea Org that you were treasonous to the Sea Org. You were not on the same page as everybody else. You did horrible, awful, bad things. And you're doing the RPF now to make up for that. So the hard work you're doing is supposed to be self-initiated. And this is just more of the mind-screwery and control that goes on in Scientology, you see. They're yelling and screaming at you to move faster and harder and, and do all that. But what they're doing is actually just reinforcing what you're already doing to yourself. So you're pushing yourself. And you're, and you're in a frame of mind that you deserve all this punishment and that this is what's necessary for you to get your ethics in, quote unquote, and to make up the damage for all the horrible things you did so that you can, in clean and good conscience, rejoin the ranks of the Sea Org as a productive, ethical, contributory Sea Org member. You see? That's the mindset. That's where they get you. And that's why they say that the RPF is a voluntary assignment. I mean, you sign legal documents saying it's, you know, that you volunteer to do it. But that's the frame of mind they get you in so that you will say that, right? And, and of course, all of this is puppet mastered by, you know, the overall indoctrination and control system of Scientology and the Sea Org. So the older people would push themselves, but we all knew they weren't going to keep up with the 20 to 30 year olds. That was just not even, an, that wasn't even a, a question. They would, you know, when they were running, they would kind of hobble, you know, maybe they would kind of be doing speed walking, right? When they were doing their physical work, if it wasn't, you know, they wouldn't be doing the heavy lifting that we youngsters would be doing. And by youngsters, I mean the 20 to 30 year olds. Um, they wouldn't be carrying seven or eight folding chairs at a time. You know, they might be carrying two or three. But for them, that was hard physical labor for them, you see. That was the standard that was expected on the RPF, and that was how it was run. So, um, hope that answers your question. Terry Lynn Grant. I was just wondering if you ever find yourself using Scientology reasoning, or whatever you want to call it, inadvertently in everyday life and then catch yourself. I've been out of the cult for decades, and I just caught myself thinking that my havingness must be low when I spent a bunch of money I shouldn't have spent. Such BS. Strange, right? What about you? Yes, Terry, I absolutely have that happen to me. I wouldn't say I have it happen to me all the time, but I have it happen often enough. <laughs> um, I don't, I've actually had that same thing with the havingness, right? Hubbard talks about havingness being like this, this noun of uh, a word that's supposed to mean um, how much you can, you know, own or possess or, or comfortably, you know, experience. That's your havingness. So, um, so words like that just kind of stick because, you know, there isn't really another word that takes its place so easily. Um, there are, the words are few and far between that that still applies for me. The other way that this is manifested is I was talked earlier uh, in the show about responsibility. That still comes around in my head quite often. Um, and that's something I, I kind of have to 
think through and sort of reason out depending on the context of the situation that I'm dealing with because like I said you can swing the pendulum too far both ways you can go you know you have full responsibility for everything going on right now which is pretty ridiculous or you have no responsibility of any kind and you are a complete victim I think that's also pretty ridiculous in most contexts uh, not all contexts but in in most especially when you're talking about adults when you're talking about children, it's a whole different kettle of fish. But as, an, as a grown-ass adult, <laughs> I do need to be responsible for my actions, and I need to be responsible for the consequences of my actions. So, you know, I can't, I don't want to swing either way on this pendulum, right? Um, and I find myself falling back on Scientology ideas and, and ideals um, when, I'm, when I'm dealing with that in my own personal life. Uh, I also find this, um, the Scientology reasoning is pretty strong on the area of communication. Uh, communication is a good thing, you know, there's nothing wrong with using good communication to resolve problems. But, again, like all things, you can take it, you can pendulum swing, take it too far. Sometimes the exact right thing to do is just back off and stop communicating because you just need to give this person some space or, or some time to deal with whatever's the conflict is and sort it out and then you can come back and communicate more about it later. That's been a lesson I've learned a few times since leaving Scientology, whereas when I was in Scientology it was always, we have to resolve this right now with communication and we're not going to get up and we're not going to leave until this is sorted out, you know, kind of thing. So, um, so, like I said, sometimes in some contexts that's a good idea, in other contexts it's not a good idea. Um, so that's how I've reasoned my way through how do I sort this out for myself and how do I decide what's appropriate and what's not. And that's how I have dealt with that. Robert Black. You've talked about when you were in the RPF and trying to balance your meager income, $11 per week, in order to supplement your diet against the provided meals. How is the food prepared in the Sea Org? There's obviously a difference between food prepared at the Celebrity Center, Flag, and Big Blue, for instance. Who decides budgets and menus and who actually prepares the food? Scientologists or contractors? Is food also made available in orgs? Okay, so in the Sea Organization you have a galley. Uh, on every Sea Org base where you have Sea Org members living, you have a galley system. Now I never went to the bases in UK or Copenhagen or Australia, so I can't really speak to those. I went to the one at Flag in Clearwater, and I, of course, lived at Big Blue for many, many years. We had an extensive, very large galley set up, and we had about five people in there who were working their asses off all day long to bake all the food, and they had a pretty good drill down as to how they went about doing it. And the budget that they received was a combined budget from the various organizations on the base who would pay into the management unit, the, the, the Continental Liaison Office, or the CLO, which is where I worked, and that organization, the CLO, is where this staff that, that manned up the galley came from, and, that was, and they were responsible for feeding the whole base. The service organizations, which were the Advanced Organization of Los Angeles, the American St. Hill Organization, and now the Los Angeles Organization, since that's all Sea Org members now, those organizations paid their money and their crew showed up at the meal times and they ate their food and then they went back and serviced the public by, you know, with training and, and uh, auditing. We at the CLO were a management organization, so our job was to manage those organizations 
and uh, handle all the logistics of the base, the estates of the base, right? All the painting of the buildings, the upkeep of the buildings, maintenance, that sort of stuff. That was all on CLO. Uh, okay, so in the mess, you had a mess, um, you had a galley uh, in charge. I don't remember all the, the post titles. There was a mess steward and, and the steward in charge and, and the cooks and the, the baker. I mean, there was a baker. There, was a, there were a, a, a few cooks. There was a salad prep person and there was a main course prep person and there was a baker and they had a you know they had big ovens i crawled around in them when we were cleaning them <laughs> you know we were we we on the rpf man we cleaned that galley a lot so i got pretty familiar with that whole thing and then there was a whole dishwashing section with a dishwasher in charge who who handled all the dishwashing and usually we in the rpf or more regularly the estates project force the boot camp guys would come in and do the dish cleaning. And yet we really just consisted of scraping the food off, throwing it into the dishwashing machine, and then there was a drying part and then stacking them up and getting in. And there was a whole daily schedule and drill to all of this. And again, uh, even that dishwashing machine, I crawled around inside of, uh, scraped off you know, barnacles and, and, and mold and stuff. I mean, it was, it was quite something. Not, sorry, not mold. Um, but whatever, oh, lime, lime would, would accumulate in there. There wasn't mold. Uh, anyway, so that was, that was part of what I did down there. So that system, that, that thing is, is, is paid for by all the organizations. Now, depending on how much they get is how much they can spend for their menu planning. So often, um, we would have whatever we could afford to have. And they would want to do menu planning that would include steak and, and hamburgers and, and you know, good lasagna and stuff like that, but they didn't get enough money from the organizations to do it. And so we would end up with beans and rice sometimes, not all the time, um, runny eggs for breakfast. You know, it's like if they could have served us better food, they would have. The, 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 the main steward of the galley wanted to feed the crew good food. It wasn't like they were all evil people going, ah, so let's destroy the, 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 the dietary <laughs> you know, nutrition of the entire base. It's just they were stuck with not enough money. And I know that sounds crazy given that Scientology has billions in reserves, but again, none of that money goes down to the Sea Org members. They're given a substandard or bare sustenance sort of uh, lifestyle. So the, so the messing system was not really that, that great. It, it fluctuated. When there were good weeks where we had lots of money, then they could afford to get some of the higher quality food and they could afford to feed us better. And when there wasn't, it was beans and rice, you know, or similar crappy ass food, which I would have to, you know, use my $50 a week to supplement my diet by going to the grocery store on Sunday morning when we had some cleaning time and buying some snack food or some actual real food that I could use as a substitute for when we had crappy meals or buying food in the, ga in the, the canteen, which was a separate money-making operation for the Sea Org where they would sell candy bars, food, Cokes, juices, vitamins, all kinds of stuff to the Sea Org. And so the Sea Org was paying the Sea Org and then making the money back through the canteen. That's where most of the staff members pay went, I think, or certainly a good chunk of it. Uh, and that was more income for the, for the CLO. So anyway, that's kind of how the system worked. 
They do not have uh, that same system at the class five city level churches. They have little cafes in the new ideal orgs and they serve coffee and donuts and you know little sandwiches or something. But that's a whole that's a very, very tiny little operation compared to what goes on on the Sea Org bases where you have five, 10, 15 people posted just to feed the crew. You know, that's how that kind of breaks down. And that's how that whole system works. Okay, it is time for Flash Answers. Douglas Myrick. In college, I ended my test anxiety using aroma, associative symbolic redefinition, and vivid mental imagery. That was 2005 and it remains gone. I visualized a trash can and stuffed an imagined symbol for my anxiety into said can. A few whiffs of lemon, about 30 seconds of imagined trash can stomping, and the anxiety response lifted and remains gone. I'm not a Scientologist, but was any of that tantamount to some kind of Hubbard technique? Well, Doug, what that reminded me of was a um, target we would often get on programs that we had to run, where the target said, write down on a, get, get all the staff together from the organization and have them all write down on a piece of paper individually all the reasons they have for, they, for thinking that this program, whatever it was, can't get done. Or why it is that, you know, that this is impossible to do or something like that. And you'd sit there and write, well, we don't have enough people or we don't have any money or we don't, you know, I don't have the time to run another program when I'm already running 20 others. And you write all this stuff down. And then the target said, now, ball all that up or take all those pieces of paper and rip them apart and throw them in the trash can. And that is, you know, how you're going to deal with all of your personal disagreements and decide that this program is going to get done anyway. That's the first thing I thought of when you asked me that. Uh, otherwise, no. We, Scientology does not use aromatherapy or symbolic representation that way in order to audit people or, or fix them uh, of their problems. But they, but they do use that kind of thing when they're getting people's reasoning or considerations or, or issues with something kind of, you know, written down, tear it up, and that's obviously a symbolic gesture to, you know, get rid of all your disagreements. That's, the, that's, that's what I saw. Trip D. A few weeks back, you mentioned getting married in Las Vegas while in the Sea Org. And I've seen other XSO mention taking trips or doing fun things. But they all talk about 112-hour weeks pretty much never getting the promised days off, working on Christmas, and so on. How do they take these trips, and where do they get the money? Uh, well, when we got married, our parents paid for everything. And we got two days off. And those were two days off that I had for wedding and honeymoon. And that was it. Uh, the entire last five years that I was in the Sea Org, that's how many days off I got. The time off in the Sea Org is not a big thing. You do not get a lot of time off. That's not why you're in the Sea Org. Uh, and the whole attitude is if you want a day off, you got to like pony up and prove why. And somebody better be covering your post functions because if you're not there, somebody better be doing your job. And there were many instances where I got in a day off approved and then I got called back in because some emergency came up that couldn't wait till tomorrow. It had to be dealt with now. And that even includes one time when I was 
uh, got a day off, drove to Santa Barbara to have some time and have a day, and I got called back within two hours. And I got back down to LA because this screaming emergency couldn't wait. And I showed up and it was no big deal at all. The emergency had come and gone, but I had to get back on the, on the job because that's just how it was. So, you know, where do they get the money? Well, people come into the Sea Org from all kinds of backgrounds, including rich parents or independently wealthy, right? Older people sometimes join the Sea Org who are, uh, you know, uh, not 12 or 13 or 15 or 18 years old. And they've built up some savings or something, and they haven't managed to give it all over to Scientology quite yet. And so they come in with some money, or they have a trust fund or something. So, you know, it depends on the person you're talking to and talking about and the circumstances and context of the time off or the honeymoon or whatever. But most of the time, it was other people paying for that stuff. Uh, it wasn't the Sea Org members. Travis. Do you find yourself using Scientology words by mistake in regular conversations and then have to explain what just happened? It's called making a mistake. See what I did there? Very rarely does this happen. I mean, maybe once a year at this point. I, I don't have those kind of mess-ups happen to me very often. But like I said earlier in the show, I do still have, you know, I do still have some of that stuff up in my head that comes out from time to time, but it doesn't tend to come out uh, with uh, mistaking uh, Scientologies in my regular day-to-day -day living. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching and listening to my nonsensical answers here to all of this. Um, really appreciate your patronage, really appreciate your time and attention to my show here on my channel, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.